So thank you for um, thank you for managing that long reading. Well done, both of you. Um, it's quite a long uh, section to apply ourselves to this evening. Um, but in essence, it's about following Jesus and who he is and why we should follow him. To get us started, think about the leaders that you, that people, are happy to follow. What do these people have in common? They're all dead. (coughs) And because they've died, history can judge their life and their legacy. But what about today's leaders? Who do you choose to follow today? Who do they choose to follow or associate with today? Some leaders inspire loyalty and allegiance and we're happy to choose to follow them. But not everyone in every country can choose who they follow. In repressive regimes such as Zimbabwe or North Korea, people have no choice. They have to give loyalty and allegiance to their political leaders. First century Palestine was similar. It was a country under Roman occupation with a puppet governor and government. In chapter 3, Luke identifies Tiberius Caesar as the Roman emperor on the left. Sorry, on the left. And Pontius Pilate as the governor of Judea. Judea, of course, is where Jerusalem is located. To help our understanding, the nearest equivalent in modern times perhaps was during the Cold War, when Soviet Russia controlled Eastern Europe. Anyone under the age of 25 wasn't born when this photograph was taken, the presidents of Russia and East Germany. 1989 was the year that Soviet Eastern Europe collapsed, and that it was so long ago makes it all the harder to comprehend that living in Eastern Europe or Soviet Russia then was like living in Zimbabwe or North Korea today or Palestine 2,000 years ago. People have no choice but to give their loyalty and their allegiance to their political leaders. In the Louvre, did you notice the missionary slide? It's very appropriate that we should be reminded about the persecuted church in the context of tonight's topic. Who should I follow as king? Unlike people who live in these countries, we have freedom to make choices. But with that freedom of choice goes the responsibility to choose and to choose wisely. So, why was and why is Jesus worth following? As king. Well, Jesus came 
as a humble servant. And that was promised by God. But that's a paradox, isn't it? King Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a young donkey. This wasn't a chance set of circumstances. It wasn't the case that the intended transport hadn't arrived. This was the fulfilment of the prophecy spoken by Zechariah 500 years earlier. The donkey was already prepared and in place, ready for the disciples to take to Jesus. The donkey's owners had been prepared by the Holy Spirit. And when the disciples confirmed that it was for Jesus' use, they raised no objection. And the Jewish people had been prepared through Zechariah when he wrote in chapter 9, verse 9, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem and the battle bow will be broken. Lowly means humble, like a servant. Yet Jesus is also righteous and victorious as king. His victory over death was still a few days away. His final victory, when his righteousness will be evident and seen by everyone, is still not yet come. But it's described in chapter 19 of the book of Revelation. Then he won't be riding a young donkey, but a war horse. <coughs> Revelation chapter 19, verse 11. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse, whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but himself. He is dressed in a robe dripped in blood, and his name is the word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. <clears throat> Revelation gives us a glimpse of the future when Jesus will come at the end of time as a kingly warrior and judge. Here in Luke's Gospel, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords rides into Jerusalem meekly, lowly, humbly, like a servant 
on a young donkey. A young donkey, the animal normally ridden by non-military personnel, but in the way that God had promised through the prophet Zechariah. So Jesus came as the humble servant. Jesus came to bring peace and had compassion. In verses 44, uh, 41 to 44, we see that Jesus came in humility and peace. And this was the representation or expression of his mission to come in order to make peace. But this wasn't the understanding of many in the crowd who were expecting a very different kind of king. They were expecting a king who would lead them on a war horse against the oppressive Roman army of occupation to take Jerusalem by force and to usher in a glorious new kingdom. Jesus knew this was their expectation. Forty years later, the people's violent rebellion against Rome resulted in the siege of Jerusalem and led to the destruction in AD 70 of both the temple and the rest of the city. With all the cruelty, privation and terror that goes with a siege. Jesus knew this and it's in his compassion for the people of Jerusalem that he weeps over the city. We can enter into his compassion as we observe on our television screens the unfolding situation in Syria, in the town of Madiah. How can we, how, how should we best express our compassion for the people that are besieged there? Jesus also came with the authority of God. Not only was Jesus the one promised by God, he also had the authority of God. Some people recognised this. In verse 38, the crowd of disciples praise God, saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. But in verse 44, Jesus laments that the people of Jerusalem didn't recognise the time of God's coming to them. Throughout his ministry, Jesus had repeatedly made it clear that he had the authority of God. At his baptism and at the beginning of his ministry, everyone present heard God's voice from heaven affirming or authorising Jesus as his son. We can read that in Luke chapter 3, verse 21. Then all the people were being baptised. Jesus was baptised too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, whom I loved. 
with you I'm well pleased. That was Jesus' authority. Jesus' authority came from God. Who else was present when John was baptizing at that time? Still in Luke chapter 3, verse 10, we have the crowd. Verse 12, tax collectors. Verse 14, soldiers. And in John's Gospel, chapter 1, verse 24, the Pharisees. And verse 35, the first of Jesus' disciples. This representative cross-section of society were present at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. They knew that Jesus' authority came from God. They were also present during and at the end of his ministry. So how did they respond to his ministry? First, the disciples. The disciples had been called to follow Jesus three years earlier. A growing number of disciples had heard him teach and seen him perform many miracles. In Luke chapter 10, he sends 72 of them out to teach and perform miracles. They return from their mission with joy. And in verse 20, Jesus tells them not to rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. At that time, Jesus, full of joy through the Holy Spirit, said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. The disciples had been given insights into the true nature and purpose of Jesus' ministry. Insights that most people didn't or couldn't grasp. The disciples were given insights to recognize who Jesus was and is and why he was worth following as king. They got the bullet points. They recognized that Jesus was the servant king promised by God. They recognized that Jesus was the compassionate, peaceful king. They recognized that Jesus' authority was from God. In chapter 19, verse 37, Luke tells us that it was from them that this joyful praise whelmed up in loud voices. The whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles that they had seen. Doubtless they were recalling those that they had seen Jesus perform, but also perhaps those that they had performed themselves when they had trusted and obeyed his commission. Like us, they didn't always trust and obey. Think of the boy with the demon 
that they weren't able to cast out. Or the crowd that they were unable to provide food for. But on this day, they'd done exactly as Jesus had told them. They'd brought the donkey to him. Doing that must have sounded at least as strange as Jesus' suggestion that they should give the crowd something to eat. Go into the village ahead, and as you enter it, you will find a colt there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it, say, the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it, just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? They replied, the Lord needs it. I know I would be praising God in a loud voice if something as extraordinary as that had happened to me. Wouldn't you? Wouldn't you? Let's look at the crowd, the tax collectors, the soldiers, the others that were present at Jesus' baptism and followed him during his ministry. Ever since Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem, a growing crowd has travelled with him. There must have been at least the 72 he sent out in chapter 10. And probably they were just some of the crowd. The crowd had increased again by chapter 11 verse 29. And by chapter 12 verse 1, we're told a crowd of many thousands had gathered so that they were trampling on one another. They're still travelling with him in chapter 14 at verse 25, and by the time he reached Jericho in chapter 19, it's the crowd who prevents Zacchaeus from being able to see Jesus. Although Jesus sees him and goes with him into his house. Zacchaeus wasn't the only tax collector that Jesus spent time with. In chapter 15, Luke tells us that tax collectors and sinners were all gathering round to hear Jesus. And I think we can infer from this that the crowd was made up of a diverse group of all types of people. The religious, the irreligious and just the plain curious. The crowd's response to Jesus as he rides into Jerusalem is a crescendo of praise, joining the disciples. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Appropriate praise. Extravagant praise. But crowds are fickle. Crowds can't be trusted. A short while previously at Zacchaeus' house, it was the crowd who began to mutter against Jesus, saying, He's gone to be the guest of a sinner. 
And once the crowd becomes a mob, even people with the best of intentions can't be trusted. Luke is clear in chapter 23 that it was the chief priests, the rulers and the people who cried out against Jesus, who kept shouting, crucify him. Same crowd, very different crescendo. Is this me sometimes? Is this you sometimes? Depending on who we're with, does our respond our response to Jesus change? Are we fickle like the crowd? Soldiers. Soldiers? Yes, soldiers. You're correct. There's no specific mention of soldiers being in the crowd travelling with Jesus to Jerusalem. But as an occupying force, you can be sure that the Romans would have had soldiers or others observing and keeping tabs on Jesus and everything that he said and did. But also, Luke's Gospel tells us about two soldiers in the Roman army of occupation who got the Jewish culture. In chapter 7, Luke records that Jesus healed the servant of the centurion at the request of the elders of the Jews. Because, they said, he loves our nation and has built our synagogue. He got the Jewish culture. In fact, Jesus was amazed at the centurion's faith. The centurion felt that he was unworthy to have Jesus come to him, or even for him to go to Jesus, but he recognized that Jesus had authority authority over his servant's sickness, just as he did over his soldiers. And so he asked Jesus, say the word and my servant will be healed. Amazing faith. Luke records another centurion who found faith in Jesus. Like the dying thief at his death, the centurion, seeing what happened, praised God and said, Surely this was a righteous man. Amazing faith. But other soldiers responded to Jesus in a different way. The men who were guarding Jesus began mocking and beating him. They blindfolded him and demanded, Prophesy, who hit you? And they said many other insulting things to him. So how do you, how do I choose to respond to Jesus? In faith, recognizing his kingly authority, or mocking, insulting denying him. 
Lastly, let's consider the response of the religious establishment. The Pharisees first. They'd been travelling with Jesus too. They would have heard everything that Jesus was teaching. They would have seen the miracles he'd been performing. In fact, Jesus and the Pharisees are often seen together in the Gospels. Sometimes in agreement, but more often in disagreement, caused by the Pharisees' emphasis in obedience to the letter of the law. In contrast to Jesus' emphasis on obedience to his commands. But they were in agreement about the need for righteousness. And Jesus affirms this in Matthew chapter 23. In Luke chapter 13, the Pharisees sought to protect Jesus against Herod advising him to go somewhere else because his life was in danger. But in Matthew 23, Jesus makes it clear to the crowds and to his disciples that whilst they must obey the Pharisees' teaching about righteousness, they were not to do what they did because they didn't practice what they preached. In Luke, chapter 11, and again in chapter 14, Jesus accepted invitations to eat at the home of Pharisees. These don't appear to have been times of joy and fellowship like the visit to Zacchaeus' house. When it was necessary, Jesus could be a very outspoken and difficult mealtime guest. He couldn't be relied upon to follow social conventions. <clears throat> Chapter 11, Jesus rebukes them and challenges their hypocritical, ritualistic religion. And that culminates in verse 53, where he says, where Luke says, the Pharisees and teachers of the law began to oppose him fiercely and besiege him with questions, waiting to catch him in something he might say. This was typical of the response of the other Jewish leaders to Jesus throughout his ministry. They challenged him throughout. Now he's arrived in Jerusalem, and he's teaching and preaching in the courts of their temple. You can imagine them thinking to themselves something like, Jesus, he was a carpenter, wasn't he? He wasn't ordained. Nobody licensed or accredited him. He's not been to rabbinical school. Who does he think he is preaching in our temple in Jerusalem? In their self-righteous indignation, they challenge Jesus, questioning his authority, 
probably they weren't present at Jesus' baptism, as the Pharisees had been. And when everybody present had heard God's voice from heaven affirming, authorising Jesus as his son. Jesus' authority was from God. This was evident to the people of faith in the crowd who'd followed him to Jerusalem and who were hanging on his every word as he taught them and preached the gospel in the temple. Jesus easily parries the Jewish leader's trick question. And then, speaking to the people, he tells the parable of the tenants to illustrate to the Jewish leaders that he fully understands that they wish to kill him. But he goes on to make it clear to them he will crush them when he falls on them. Although the people don't comprehend the meaning behind what he's saying, God, through the Holy Spirit, gives the teachers of the law and the chief priests the insight to understand he had spoken this parable against them. They wanted to arrest him immediately, but they couldn't. They were afraid of the people. So we've looked at the various responses of the people who'd followed him through his ministry to Jesus. Now we need to apply this. What's your response? What's my response to Jesus? Jesus spells it out to the people and to the Jewish leaders. There are two possible responses to him. Either choose to have him fall on them and be crushed. Or choose to fall on Jesus and be broken by him. Sounds a bit like Hobson's choice, doesn't it? Certainly Jesus makes it clear that he will crush the Jewish leaders for their unbelief. And it's clear that a choice must be made and must be made before it's too late. That is to say, before he comes again. Not riding on a donkey, but riding on a war horse, as Revelation says. And he will come to strike down or crush, as it says here, those whose choice is not to follow him as king. The alternative to follow Jesus as king, he says, is to fall on him and be broken by him. A strange illustration but perhaps the young donkey can help us to unpack that. The young donkey had never been ridden before. But it was, as the saying goes, broken or broken in by Jesus. The young donkey happily went where Jesus wanted to be taken. 
in doing that, he took part in a celebration and a parade that we're still talking about 2,000 years later. King Jesus doesn't promise us fame like that young donkey. But he does promise that we will be broken when we fall on him, meaning that he will lead us so that our choices will become his choices. His kingdom will also become our kingdom. What that will mean in practice, what that will look like, will be different for each of us because God deals with people as individuals. He dealt with the, he dealt with the centurion soldier in a very different way to Zacchaeus, the tax collector. For Zacchaeus, previously a social pariah, Choosing to follow Jesus as king meant, meant taking steps to repair his relationships with the people around him. It meant valuing his, relation, his relationships with people. It meant re-evaluating his wealth, how he had acquired it and how he would choose to use it. And the theme of how we choose to use what gifts we have and the money that we have is a continuation of last Sunday evening's theme. All of that will be different in practice because God deals with us differently as we make the choice to fall on him and follow him as king. Falling on Jesus was the choice that the people were making as they followed him to Jerusalem. <coughs> Have you chosen to fall on him and to follow him as king? The alternative is to be crushed by him. We have the freedom to choose. As I said at the beginning, with freedom goes the responsibility to choose. And we need to choose wisely. Have you made your choice? Actually, really, what choice do you have but to follow King Jesus? Let's just take a moment to reflect in prayer. Father God, we thank you for all that you have done for us through the cross. We thank you that you were willing to make that journey to Jerusalem. You were willing to go to that cross. And through that cross you have the victory over sin and death. We thank you that we don't have to choose to be crushed by you. We thank you that we can choose to be broken by you, to be led by you, 
so that your choice becomes our choice and your kingdom our kingdom. We pray that you would help us to choose wisely. And if there are those here who haven't yet made a choice, we pray that you would guide and direct and by your Holy Spirit open their eyes to see the choice that they should make. And for those of us who do choose to follow you, we pray that you would help us to be open to your guiding, to your leading, that you would help us to understand where you would lead each of us, whatever that might mean, whatever that might look like. Help us to trust you in that, recognising that you are King of kings and Lord of lords. In Jesus' name, Amen.